Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website, midtownchurchokc.org. Jesus, it's never really far from our minds, but this week we were reminded again in the most horrific of ways that we desperately need you, that we are a people, this humanity that tend toward violence and ugliness, that we are surrounded by grief and tragedy, injustice and oppression, doesn't seem to be far off. And we grieve, we lament, and with each new tragic occurrence in our culture, uh, we seem to face the, the force of numbing or the force of being overwhelmed and throwing up our hands and wondering if there's really ever hope. And tonight, we remember and we proclaim together that we are people who have been marked by resurrection, that you offer us, you invite us into a very different story, and we have hope there. And we pray that your kingdom of mercy and your kingdom of justice and your kingdom of love would come that your will, your good and perfect and healing will would be done in Parkland, Florida, and in Oklahoma City, and in our very hearts and minds in this room, even as it is in heaven. And we are reminded that we can gain entrance into your kingdom because you ran to the kind of violence that we all run away from. You walked willingly into your murder and you took on the death that was for us. And we remember with awe and with gratitude and with pain. And we ask that somehow, not only could we benefit from your self-sacrifice, Jesus, but could you somehow make us to be like you too? Could you transform us? And could you use us to bring the justice and the mercy and the love and the freedom and the peace that we long to see in your kingdom. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in us as it is in heaven. And we pray this expectantly, humbly, ready for how you will answer. We ask that you would make us courageous to obey. And we pray this together in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to turn to uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. And while you're standing, I forgot this part, we have some friends who have Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, just raise your hand. Now you have to raise it high because people are standing and they will share a Bible with you. 
And if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this. Sorry, I, I went out of order, everybody. I apologize. Raise your hand high if you need a Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you. Somebody took a Bible. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It was a tall guy who did it. Hear the word of the Lord uh, for us in this first Sunday in Lent. Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose is, was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. When I was a senior in college, I finally mustered up the courage to take a class from Craig Keene. Now, Craig taught a series of theology classes that would leave kids bruised and beaten up. Students would come into the cafeteria. I would watch them after class. They would come into the cafeteria. Their minds were expanded. Their bodies were exhausted. And their tongues were trying to put into words what was in their brain. I was afraid to take classes from Craig. I heard he was really, really hard. And I could see the effects of his teaching. But this year I found, I found just enough to sign up for one of his classes. And when I went to that class, I found myself in that class whipped up in this world of thrilling conversation and mind-expanding discovery. We read read ancient texts that I never thought would be interesting, but my, my mind was blown. Our conversations were charged with emotion and thought, and the conversation spilled out into the hallway of the classroom. We studied, uh, the, we studied and learned the philosophy of, of, of Soren Kierkegaard, Martha, Martin Luther, and Roberta Bondi, John Wesley, the ancient fathers. We read all of this. And until that day, 
I was like most college students. I only thought about the important things. Thought about staying up late, seeing if Holly will go out on a date with me, video games, sex. I thought about that a lot. I, and I was always trying to think about finding a job that was going to pay real money. These were the important things on my mind. But Craig, he did something. He encouraged us. He encouraged me to explore the deepest parts of ourselves. And, and I found that in discussing topics like love and art imagination and hope and God. When we talked about these things, I found that they were mysterious and wonderful. I found that in this class, my emotions were pushed to the edge, and I discovered that people were as mysterious as the cosmos itself, and that community, real, authentic community, was the most beautiful thing in the universe. And then, at the center of it all, In the midst of all this hard work, after all the reading, all of the thinking, all of the exploring, all of the attempts to discover a language for that which was in and around me, I discovered that there was something else, or should I say, someone else that was in the middle of all of it. There, in in the middle of all that mystery, all that thinking, and all that emotion, was... Jesus. This is the definition of Lent. Jesus in the middle of it all. What made people fear Craig so much were his final tests. He'd He'd, uh, you know, he'd give you just one question at the end of the semester, and then he'd hand you a stack of blue books, and you'd start writing. And I remember I, I, had, this, I had these blue books and my final class was a, a, my final was a class. Excuse me. My final was writing one question, the answer to one question, over five days. Every day in class, I wrote. And after this whole semester of these mental gymnastics, I, I could feel the emotions right up on the surface, and I could feel the Jesus inside me. And I found these new insights coming through my pen as I wrote. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, pages and pages over five days. At one point, I, I had no more words. I only had thoughts, and I only had emotions. So I began to draw what I was thinking. Arrows and stick figures went into those blue books. And when the words finally came back, they, were actually, they actually came back too fast to put them in order. I don't know if the subject and the predicate were in the right place. I noticed when I reread it at the end that I didn't even put any punctuation into my answer. Sentence structure meant nothing to me. And in that po- at that point, in those moments, neither did my grade. All I knew was that as I wrote, my mind and my heart were putting out thoughts faster than my pen could go. And in the middle of all that writing, there was Jesus. This is the definition of Lent. Jesus in the middle of it all. So you know, I got an A- minus on that final. This is what I think... My experience with that final is what I think happened for Paul in Ephesians. In the original Greek, if you would read the original Greek, you would look at it and you would say, well, 
This whole thing is just one gigantic run-on sentence. Paul, who is an apostle that's chosen by God himself, was writing kind of a blue book. It, it was this beautiful piece, this emotion, these thoughts that he just had to get out of himself. He had discovered the mysteries of the cosmos. He had discovered mysteries of the community. And, and he had discovered mysteries within him, him, his own self. And it comes out in this long and very fully packed, very poetic, almost musical letter in one run-on sentence. He's chatting away like a child telling a story that doesn't take a breath. He's so excited. And when you read Ephesians, you can see that in the middle of it all, like Lent, there's, there's Jesus. John, John McKay says that the book of Ephesians is like pure music. And, and when we read it, what we read is truth that sings and doctrine that's set to music. And it's the most contemporary book in the Bible. And the reason this is, is because it's a book that's written to the church, and it's written for the church, and it's written for us today. So anyone who would meditate on this passage for very long would be shoved into the mystery of exploration. If, if you look at it, imagination will explode within you, and maybe on the outside of you as you read Ephesians. As we read Ephesians together, it could be that we're charged with hope. And it could be that readers are forced to think about the mysteries of the cosmos. They're forced to think about the mysteries of themselves. And they're forced to think about the mysteries of the community, which might just be the most beautiful thing in the world. And when we discover this, perhaps maybe praise and worship spills out of us. And when that happens, we sing because we find that maybe Jesus is in the middle of it all. I think this is what Paul is doing when he says in verse 1, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with all spiritual blessings. This is what Lent is. Jesus in the middle of it all. It's no wonder that Paul is charged up when he discovers what he has discovered, where he's writing this run-on sentence like he was in Craig's class or something, not taking a breath and bursting forth like forth with this, this explosion of praise. Because he has discovered that if Jesus is in the middle of it all, then it means that God, from the very beginning, even before God decided to make the world chose us, adopted us by bringing us into his own family. This is what Paul says in the message version. Long before he laid the earth's foundations, he had us in mind and had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. When I, was, um, when I was doing my doctoral work at Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, we began as a class, as a cohort, we began talking about this idea that the church is invited, to, uh, that the church's responsibility is to invite people into our community. Um, we, we talked about the idea that we're to create strategies to assimilate people into the life of our church, to plug them into ministries and give them a place to connect. 
But the discussion about how we, how we assimilate people into the life of our community was halted when Andrea King interrupted the conversation with emotion. Andrea is an African-American pastor. She is sharp and brilliant. And at graduation, we referred to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the other Dr. King because we revered and respected her so much. So Dr. King, our Dr. King, Andrea said, this word, assimilation, that's a bad word. It's a racially charged word. It's a word that means to change you into us. She said in the class, it's a word that white people use in white churches, not even realize, realizing how insensitive they're being. And when you use this word, you forget about the suffering of people. You forget about our suffering. And you forget about our pain. And you act as if our history and how it has shaped us is gone. You forget about the oppression that we have faced. And when you talk about assimilation, you forge past us to make us who you want to be. She said, assimilation is antithetical to the gospel. It's anti-Jesus. Jesus did not assimilate, she said. Jesus adopted. You know, she was right. You don't find Jesus in the middle of assimilation. You find Jesus identifying people and then adopting them. And Lent reminds us of this incredible vulnerability on Jesus' part. He doesn't ask us to forget, but what Jesus does is he enters into our story, he enters into our pain, and he decides to share that with us. Jesus' kind of adoption, a biblical adoption, an Ephesians adoption is this, the recognition that even before the formation of the world, we were picked chosen by God to be a part of God's family. The, the spiritual leader, Thomas Merton, said this, through his love, he took us in without stopping to inquire whether or not we were worthy. I once did this. I once did a wedding for this couple, and the bride's father was unworthy to walk her down the aisle. He loved the bar he frequented more than uh, he loved her. And she didn't believe that her dad was worthy to uh, walk her down the aisle. She felt like perhaps he wasn't even worthy to be her dad. And she was devastated in this dilemma. And then she said one day that God met her. And the word she used was adoption. She said, he adopted me. And as we met to plan the wedding, she confessed, I finally know what the psalmist means when the psalmist says that he is the father to the fatherless. The gospel way of adoption or the Jesus way of adoption or the way that God adopts us looks like Gus and Melody. Their biological children had grown up and left home, so they had three empty bedrooms. And they opened up their house and attempted to make a family for, for three very angry and not very well-adjusted middle school boys. I, and I remember when they dedicated those boys to the Lord, there were all these young mothers and fathers up at the front of the church with their babies dressed up in white, and they were waiting in the line, and then there was Gus and Melody with these boys. 
And when these young parents had no idea what they were getting into and were taking pictures, Gus and Melody, who knew full well, were actually making promises. And I remember Gus taking the microphone from the pastor and saying to, the, uh, saying to these boys for the whole congregation to hear, boys, and he called them each by name, we are your new parents. We are your mom and dad. And by God, we are with you no matter what. In this room, there are a number of adoption stories. Some are good and some are bad. But I want to let you know that God's adoption is a different kind of adoption. Because God is the perfect father. And God has chosen us from the beginning through his son. And no matter how messed up we are, God takes great pleasure in this adoption. You, my friends, are his beloved The way that God the Father feels about his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, is how God wants to pour his his fatherly love on you. He carries your picture in his wallet. When you were born, he painted the bedrooms, which have been prepared for you, according to St. John, pink and blue. He tossed out cigars. He told all of his friends. God sets up birthday parties for you that are so amazing that the angels in the heavenlies pin them and put them on their Pinterest boards. God is wild about you. But I'll have you know that Paul says that God does not just adopt us. He does not just adopt you. He destined you for adoption. Now, this is a sort of strange part of the poem that has been a source of discussion among theologians and philosophers for a long time. And many who are smarter than me have worked through the mental exercises uh, in this part of the text. Many who are a lot brighter than me have worked through these words destined or predestined and what this exactly means. We could probably have Craig come here and talk to us about the, uh, the, the philosophical aspects of the universe and our minds would be stretched when we ask, what does Paul mean when he says that we're destined for adoption? Well, for what it's worth, I'm going to tell you what I think. We have been adopted. We know that. That's pretty clear. Uh, but not only have we, have, have we been adopted, which is a thrilling idea in God's mind, but, but what this means is, is that we have been destined. Or, or in other words, we have a destination. God has adopted us to put us on a path. God has adopted us because we've been made for more than what this world and what our lives actually are right now. And this is how I came to my conclusion. Because of Lent. Lent is the story of Jesus who by the power of the Spirit reveals God's love And he does this by getting involved in the middle of our real lives. And there is really not much else that God cares about other than his children and the created order that he has established for them. 
You know, Jesus is completely disinterested in the current authorities or attention getters or the cultural nuances or the temptations or the fads of the day or the dominant powers. But Jesus is profoundly for us. And because of this, you and I have places to go. This has been God's intent from the very beginning of time. He has adopted us for something. You know, we love it when babies are born. Birth is so exciting, and while painful and stressful, and it seems like the baby is never going to come, everyone, once the baby comes, is thrilled when he or she finally arrives. But the euphoria of birth only lasts for a little bit. It's hardly indefinite. All of us are born, no exceptions. Birth brought us alive, kicking and crying into a world that is vast and complex, damaged and demanding and beautiful all at the same time. And in increments, day by day, we start to, we, we get the hang of life. We drink from our mother's breast, then we go to sleep, then we wake up. But one day we wake up and we stand up, upright to everyone amazed at our pedestrian acrobatics. They clap for us and cheer, but it isn't long before now we've got language mastered and nouns and verbs. We can, we can put them in order with the best of them. We are growing up, and you and I are destined to grow up. And in this text, it is not just that we get older or get more talented, Paul says that you and I are adopted, and we have a destination. It's it's an opportunity for us to grow up. And what he essentially means is this, that our destination is to become fully alive to God. That we become fully aware of God, God's holiness and God's will and God's kingdom and God's power and God's glory. And, and there is more to life after birth and our mother's milk, this, more to life than sleeping and waking and walking and talking. Paul is saying there is more to life. There is God, God who is in the middle of it all. It's like Paul is saying, you're adopted. You're destined for adoption. You, you're to grow up. God adopts us, and then God sets, on us, sets us on a course, and this course is a great course of hope, and it's a course of purpose. It's a course of destination. And in this whole thing, he says, you are blessed. You know, this world... It's just a big, dumb mess. And this word blessed is a map for finding our way through this world, this country, this country of death. In this text we read, there's reason and there's purpose and there's a higher goal for us to live into. And in the middle of all of it, there is Jesus. This is the very definition of Lent. Jesus gets into the middle of it all. You know, a couple years ago, we were a church that was newly birthed, and we celebrated, and we threw parties, and we discovered together that we were once a group of people that did not know one another, and together we were fatherless, only to be 
brought in and adopted by God, and now we have a purpose. And God's intent for us as a community is growth, that we would together learn what it means not just to move to a new home or to go to a new building, but together we would learn what it means to become fully alive to God, to bear witness to God's, uh, uh, to God's activity and to see what God is doing. But our adoption is not just something that God hands to us and a judge rules on it and a paper is signed. What Paul says is, no, 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 no. This adoption and this destination, it is sealed. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is the, it's promised by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a little strange, this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's, it's almost too much for us to grasp because it's so wonderful, so earth-shattering. Always when you read in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is always, always actively pointing to Jesus the Son. And when you read about Jesus the Son in the scripture, you find that the Son is always pointing to the love of the Father. And when you read about the Father, the Father is always actively working for creation for you through the power of the Spirit. And how is it that this Father actively works for creation? By the power of his Spirit? Well, again, the Father gives the world his Son. Father, Son, and Spirit. The three in one seal the adoption papers through a flurry of activity and love for you. Much like Craig's class, Paul gets excited he goes on and on, and Paul is recognizing the activity of God. And this activity of God looks like a God who will show up. It looks like a God who will adopt us. It looks like a God who will stick by us no matter what through the suffering and through the pain. It looks like a God who is fully alive and then who takes us through that pain and makes us fully alive as well. And by the power of the Spirit, the love of the Father is displayed in Jesus, the Son, on the cross. Jesus is in the middle of it all. Children, gas prices, economic woes, school shootings, this forever long war, the work Bills, broken down cars, lost jobs, the death of a loved one, job changes, going to the dentist, paying off college debt, moving into a new building, taking out the trash, divorce, cancer reports, heading to the gym, playing video games, prison sentences, choosing insurance policies, paying taxes. He is in the middle of it all. In the middle of it all, there is God. God who has adopted us. God who gives us the spirit of Jesus and seals his love in real time and in real life. In the middle of it all, there is Jesus. And this is Lent. Do you know what 
our responsibility is to do after we realize that God has done this good thing for us. It's super simple. We simply say, wow, thanks. That is the response of the church. Thanks. And the best way that we say thanks is to be a receiver of this gift that God has given This week, I got a letter from a young man that I and several others in our church have visited, prayed for, and cared about while he was in jail. Came to my house, an old school letter with my address on it. And this letter was the highlight of my year. He let me know he was doing well. And he said that God had been with him and that God was changing him there in that jail. And he believed that God had big plans for him when he gets out. He has been adopted and realizing it. And he is coming alive to God. He has got a destination even though he's in a place of suffering. And you know what I could feel? His gratitude his gratitude for the people of this congregation, for what they had been doing for him, his gratitude for his teachers and his mother and his attorney. And then, do you, you know what he calls me? He wrote it on the top. Dear Uncle C. I love that. The love of God by the power of the Spirit who shows up in Jesus has sealed each one of us by God through adoption and now a prisoner and a pastor, our family. I love what Walter Brueggemann says about Thanksgiving. He says we have this sign, this symbol, this sacrament called the Eucharist. And it has these elements, bread and wine. They are the quintessential gifts of how we can receive gratitude. He said, imagine the church has a sacrament, and the sacrament's name is thanks. Because we are on the receiving end of God's gift without any accomplishments, without achievement, and without any qualification. The gift is for those who, through gratitude, simply want to embrace it. My friends, you are his beloved. You have been adopted. And there is a destination for you. And this is not something that I promise you or or Paul promises you. This is a seal, the paper signed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you to this table of thanks. And I want to remind you that at dinner, Jesus took the bread as he sat with his friends. And he gave thanks. And he, said, he broke it and he said this, This is my body which has been broken for you. It represents a new covenant, a new promise. And you are my new family. This is a gift for you. And whenever you eat together, I want you to remember this. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. My blood has been shed for you. You, my brothers and sisters, your life is worthy to trade for my own. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. When you come to this table, you are saying thanks. 
and you are recognizing that God in Jesus has adopted you by the power of the Holy Spirit and that seal cannot be broken. I want to let you know that this table is for everyone who wants to say thanks and who is open to this good work of God in Christ. I also want to let you know that in a very practical way, we want no barriers, so it is for everyone. Our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic so that you might feel welcome. So I want you to come down this aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good. That is a gift, and that comes from God. We say it every single week. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift. So come down our center aisle, allow one of these to serve you, listen to what they have to say. And son and daughter of God, be thankful. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, Pastor Andrea will come and bring the elements to you. This is a gift for you, friends. I'm, a gl- I'm glad to be a brother of yours. And now to know because of the promise of the Spirit that has sealed our adoption, we are of the same family. Welcome to this table, my friends. You may come when you're ready.